For the rest of us, what we're doing today will be a little bit different from our normal custom. Usually we have one scripture reading and then a sermon. And what we are doing today is looking at a much larger portion of scripture than we normally look at. So rather than simply reading it and then having a sermon um, on one text, I'm going to read sections. I'm going to read a portion of the passage and then discuss it and then read the next section because we're going to cover two and a half chapters. We're doing this because this particular story is central in the Joseph story. And while it would be certainly worth taking six or seven weeks to go through the details because there's so much great stuff here, um, seeing how it all unfolds in this moment, I think, is valuable enough that that's the approach that we're going to take. So we're looking at the Joseph story this year, and we're calling them the Joseph stories because they're not just about him, but they're about his family, about Jacob and Judah and these others. Uh, and we're looking at Joseph, one reason, it's just a great story. <laughs> if you read uh, the whole end of Genesis, it's really one of the great sections of the Bible, and in particular, the more familiar you get with the Bible the more you'll see in this story um, how much is woven into the deep fabric of God's plan for his people. But we're looking at Joseph right now in this season because one of the things that becomes clear is that, that within this messy world where people do all sorts of wrong and there's suffering and there's injustice, God is somehow at work in, with, and under all of this moving things forward. And that's a helpful thing for us to see in general, but certainly in the time period in which we are living. This week, I read an interview with an epidemiologist who was talking about the concerns she has with some of the public health messaging. And in particular, she said, right now, the, the ongoing present emphasis on, on trying to tell people to keep wearing masks outdoors, she said that that's really not um, uh, based on... on the, the science of how we could end the pandemic. But she said it's based on social realities, which is people feel they need to do something and they feel their lives are outside of control. So if I could put on a mask and if I go out and everybody else is masked, it feels safer. And what she's saying, uh, her thing was, well, actually, maybe we should prioritize elsewhere. What I was interested in is her honing in on what we're feeling. We're feeling like we don't know what to do. And we're feeling unsafe. And so this season, this last 14, 16 months, has been a season where we've felt uh, in new ways that we don't understand what we thought we once understood and the things we disagree on. We're, are, there's a lot more now at stake with our disagreements. But perhaps even more than that, we feel vulnerable in a way that we're, we're in control of so little. Whether or not we can go <laughs> to do whatever we would normally do, we no longer have permission to do. That's been part of this year. The Joseph story reminds us that the Bible tells us, well, we never know all that we're supposed to know, and we are never really in control of things. Um, but we can actually, we can go out into the world, to this messy, scary world, if we understand that God is with us. There's a theology that enables us to exist knowing the limits of what we can do and what we can understand, and yet still live uh, properly. And so the Joseph story helps us with that. So today I'm going to begin with chapter 43, um, verse 1, and I'm going to read the first 14 verses as our first reading. Let's go to the passage. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, the man solemnly warned us, saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, 
then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. And take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio, nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother. And arise, go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. We're in a section where things are stuck. Joseph is in Egypt demanding that his brother come to him. Uh, Jacob is in Canaan demanding that Benjamin stay with him. Benjamin doesn't know Joseph is alive. And so, so there's this situation that's not moving forward in the famine, that the family is starving because Jacob is insisting that Benjamin stays. And we get stuck like this all the time when we have some kind of attachment. Uh, we probably most experience it in the details of life, like uh, when we have to clean our cluttered place. And we just don't have the time to get to cleaning. And we think that the main thing is, if only I had the time, and then so finally you find the time, you schedule the time, I'm going to take three hours to clean my apartment. Because you know what you need to do. You just need to get rid of stuff. That's the answer for clutter. And you pick something up and you say, well, I'm going to get rid of this, except it, it does remind me of that time. And so let me put that for now in the, in the keep pile. And I'll, I'll get rid of this, except that I know I'll probably need it, or in case I do, it would be a shame to have to buy it again. So let me put that in this pile. And before you know it, you haven't really solved your clutter problem because the, the clutter problem is not a scheduling problem, but, but a being stuck because of certain attachments. And you need somebody to come through and say, if what you really want is a memory, take a photo and get rid of the object. And here's a question about that thing you may need again. Are you ever going to need to charge your Palm Pilot? There's a good chance that if you get rid of it, you need to buy it. Just buy it again, but don't hold on to it. And so we do that with our stuff, but we do that with everything. How often bitterness is because we are not willing to let go of, of some attachment to the past. It just seems wrong to let it go. I don't want to be an angry person. I don't want to be a miserable person. I want to be free. But I don't want to, let, I, I don't want to forgive this person in my heart, and so then we're stuck. Benjamin uh, is this beloved son of Israel, whose name is Jacob. It's interesting they call him Israel here, his identity as the father of this nation. And Jacob is stuck because he's afraid of what will happen to be Benjamin. What will happen to Benjamin? It's a bit irrational, actually, in that he was willing to send his ten sons to Egypt. Now Simeon is in prison, being held until Benjamin comes. So, in terms of the facts, um, Jacob knows that Simeon is going to remain in prison until Benjamin comes. They're two years into the famine. We, the reader, and Joseph knows the famine, will, the famine will go on another five years. Jacob doesn't know that, but he knows they're starting to starve. And unless they go to Egypt, there's no help. But he's stuck in his fear. Now, what may be helpful for you to know is Benjamin at this time is probably around 37 years old. So it would make sense if he was a five-year-old and Jacob was saying, I want him to stay with me. But at this point, he doesn't want his 37-year-old boy going to Egypt with the other brothers, the other nine brothers, just in case something happens. Well, we know something's happened to Simeon. We know that we're all dying, and so Judah steps up. And that's significant. Um, in this story, we've already met Judah in Genesis 38. He plays an important role throughout this because as you follow the book of Genesis through, through the Bible and you're watching the sons of Jacob, Joseph is very important. But ultimately, the story is going to follow the sons of Judah. And so here's, here's an example of him stepping up to be the leader of this family. And he reasons with his father, which is to say, we could have been back twice at this point. And now it's not just us that are starving, but our children. <laughs> and so you're concerned with your son? Well, what about our sons and daughters? And so he reasons with him, showing him that it's worth taking the risk but he also does something very important, which, is, which sets a trajectory. He steps forward and says, I am going to take responsibility for Benjamin. Hold me accountable. His life for my life. That's something that Judah says that is part of persuading 
Jacob. So Jacob eventually says in verse 14, May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. I mean, that's interesting. They're talking about the man. They're talking about his beloved son, Joseph, who Jacob thinks is dead. And they're calling him the man. And, and here, here they have these, the two sons of Rachel. Rachel is dead. Jacob thinks Joseph is dead. Jacob does not want Rachel's other son, Benjamin, to die. And so he's faced with this choice now. Will I let my last link to Rachel, the woman that I wanted to marry, go? He says, may he send you back your brother and Benjamin. As for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. He resigns himself. Maybe it's acceptance. I don't know what it is, but, but his theology behind it. What do you do when you feel powerless? Because that's how he feels. He's afraid. If I send my son, once he's gone, there's no telling what will happen. Well, he makes the choice to send him, but he says, may God Almighty grant you mercy. That theme of mercy. That's what, what powerless people hold on to when they remember God Almighty, the Hebrew El Shaddai. Here he is recognizing, I need to release Benjamin so we don't stay stuck in poverty. But I don't want to because I'm afraid of what will happen. So now at his limits, he accepts his limitation. If I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. He says, may God Almighty, may God whose power I hope in, may he show us mercy. And we're going to see that God indeed is showing mercy to this family without their knowing it. I'm going to pick up in verse 15 of chapter 43. So the men took this present, and they took double the money with them, and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring them into the house and slaughter an animal, and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house, and they said, it is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in, so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food, and when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks, and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us, and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. He replied, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when he had given them their donkeys, when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present they had with them and bowed down to him, to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? And they said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and he saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. And then Joseph hurried out. For his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber, and he wept there. Uh, so as the story is moving along, we get into this very emotionally tense moment. The tension is building, and for the brothers, it's fear. Uh, that's verse 18. The men were afraid. And what they say is, he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. Uh, they think they will be accused of being thieves after having been accused of being spies. I think a modern reader might think that uh, Moses, who wrote this, could use a good editor because the tension here as you read this, what are they afraid of? He may assault us. Oh, man, we don't want to get assaulted. And fall upon us to make us servants. Imagine we go there and he enslaves us all and seize our donkeys. 
I think they'd say, I'd cut out the part about the donkeys, really. Uh, I think it's enough that you're afraid to be assaulted, that they're going to make you slaves. What would happen to the donkeys happen to the donkeys. But it does give us this picture that they, uh, you know, this huge uh, trip and effort to get there, uh, they're prepared to lose everything. They show up thinking, if this guy is still angry, we're done. They're angry, and then the steward of Joseph announces peace. <laughs> Another important word. We've heard mercy. Now we hear peace. Uh, and then he tells them something that probably uh, left a bit of theological confusion for them. He says, actually, uh, we still have the money. God must have put your money back in the sacks. I suspect that was Joseph's explanation. And, and there's a certain sense as we're thinking of providence that God did by putting it on the heart of Joseph to do this. But the steward makes it sound like a miracle. That would be very confusing for these people that have asked God for mercy. And now they wonder, wait a second. We paid the people and, and, the, and, and the money just showed up? Um, they're already a bit theologically confused as their, their guilty conscience is fearing that every moment of judgment that's about to come upon them is payback for what they did to Joseph more than 20 years ago. Now they're trying to make sense of this situation. But it's interesting, um, verse 26, when Joseph came home, they brought him into the house, they brought the present that they had with him, and bowed down to him to the ground. So now they have Benjamin with them, which they did not have the last time they saw him. Now this is standard. This is the powerful man that they're afraid of. They're going to bow down. But keep in mind this dream Joseph had. One day, uh, the sheaves will bow down to the one sheaf. The sun, moon, and stars will bow down. And they thought in killing Joseph, they could kill the dream. But now the dream is being realized. The 11 brothers are literally bowing before Joseph, a man of great power and authority of whom they are terribly afraid. And so what God announced in the beginning is unfolding, and they have no idea that this is God's peace and mercy. Right now, they're just terrified. They don't understand what's happening. And it's interesting, Joseph's mindset, verse 27, he inquired about their welfare and said, is your father well? <laughs> is he still alive? See, they've been gone for quite a while because Jacob wouldn't let them back with Benjamin. And Joseph, maybe, I don't know, but maybe he's starting to wonder, I had this plan thinking if I kept Simeon, that would get Benjamin back. Did I kill my father? You know, that could be a thought that would cross his mind. My father is so bereaved, so committed to Benjamin that now he, his first question, is my father alive? It's interesting, that's in Joseph's mindset. And they tell him yes. And then in verse 29 and 30, is this your youngest brother? Those are his two concerns. Is my father well? And is this my true brother? You're all my half-brothers. We have the same father. But there are four different women, four different mothers. Only Benjamin and I are the children of Rachel. And then he says another key word, God be gracious to you, my son. That theme of grace. So now you have Jacob asking for mercy. The steward announcing peace. Um, when we're powerless, we want mercy. Jacob, uh, Joseph, from a position of power, shows himself gracious. He, he wishes grace upon Benjamin. And Joseph turns, his compassion grew. And there's something about grace that does that. <laughs> whatever Joseph's plan was, whatever facade he thought he was going to keep and maybe still abuse and mistreat his brothers, he announces grace upon Benjamin. And as he announces it, uh, there's something that seems to be a spirit of grace that wells up in him and that it's described as his compassion that he needs to leave because he's so overwhelmed at what's happening that he needs to, to, to leave to weep. And so the tension is building and let's pick up the story uh, once Joseph returns. Verse 40, uh, chapter 43, verse 31. Uh, speaking of Joseph, then he washed his face and came out and controlling himself, he said, serve the food. They served him by himself and them by themselves. And the Egyptians ate with him by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with them. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each, each man's money in the mouth of his sack and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. 
As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. And we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and end with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. So you can see the story turning around. The last chapter, they went to Joseph's house, terrified something would happen. And what relief that they were greeted with a banquet. And now they left with Simeon and with Benjamin and with food and with money. What joy. Until the steward shows up and says, wait a second. Why did you take my master's cup? And some people uh, think that in this story, Joseph is laying out a test. That's very possible. We don't know what Joseph was thinking. But if he's testing them to find out, have my brothers changed? Have they grown? Are they still the same guys who sold me into slavery and plotted to kill me? Um, he would be doing so, testing not just their moral character, but their attitude towards the children of Rachel. Because after all, Jacob's goal from the very beginning was to marry Rachel. And then the story gets more complicated. Um, and one of the reasons that they hate Joseph is because Jacob so loved Rachel and his, quote, firstborn. Of course, Reuben is the firstborn. There were many born before Joseph, but, but Joseph is the firstborn to Rachel. It would make sense that Joseph would say, well, they think I'm dead. Are they now still so resentful of my mother, and my father's love for her, that they would come for Simeon but not care about Benjamin. And so it looks like he might be feeling them out. Is it still the, the sons of Rachel against the sons of Leah and the other concubines? And we find out, in fact, that the brothers pass the test. They treat Benjamin as one of their own. Um, the question that, Benjamin, that Joseph sends uh, in, in verse 4 tells the steward to ask, why have you repaid evil for good? Now, this is the book of Genesis. It opens up declaring what God has made is good. And then the intrusion of evil. And we're following this story in this world where evil is growing and working itself out. Is there anything good? And is God still good? And the Bible is affirming God is still good. <laughs> you just can't see it because you don't see and understand his workings. But here's Joseph who understands, you have meant evil for my life. And now he's going to teach them a lesson with this question. You came to my house and I gave you a banquet. And now you steal my cup. Why have you repaid my good with evil? But of course, where the story is going is Joseph is going to repay their evil with good. That's what makes this a redemptive story. That Joseph does something in the character of God that resolves everything. But there's this um, moment that is significant in a culture where what you say matters where the brothers are convinced they're being falsely accused, there's a mistake. And so in order to show that they would never steal, in verse 9, when they're threatened, whichever of your servants is found with it, uh, not that they threaten, uh, what they proclaim to the steward is, whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. That's how they're convinced they were that they were being falsely accused. If any of us has this cup, let that person die and the rest of them become slaves. And then in verse 12, the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. And as we look at how Genesis is redeeming these stories and these families, 
you go back and you realize there are echoes of the lives of, of the patriarchs being played out in these cyclical kind of stories where, where what, what is the, the story here? Well, the announcement that there will be seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. We go back to a story where Jacob sees Rachel and he loves her and wants to marry her. And Laban, Rachel's father, says, if you work for me for seven years, you will get Rachel. And he does so. And he loves her so much it seems worth it, except that he's tricked that Laban sends him into Leah. He consummates his marriage with Leah and then finds out that he is not uh, with Rachel, the woman he loves, and, and agrees to work an additional seven years for Rachel. So Jacob has been through this 14-year process and then another six years managing the livestock, and then he decides, we're getting out of here. So Jacob takes uh, Rachel, Leah, the concubines, their children, and they flee, and Laban goes after them and catches up and says, what are you doing? Why are you leaving with my grandchildren, with my daughters, with my livestock? And why did you steal my household gods? And Jacob says, these are my wives. These are our livestock. I have the right to it. But what on earth are you talking about your household gods? <laughs> if any one of us has one of your gods, let that person die. And Laban searches and never finds anything. But the truth is, Rachel had taken his idol. And she was not discovered, but Jacob had said, let the person who has it die. Now, it's not that his words have the power to affect that reality, but you read through the next stories, and Rachel, having given birth to Joseph, is pregnant. And she is going to have a child, and she has the child, and she dies while giving birth to the child and names him Benjamin. So here we have this story that in Jacob's mind, uh, would he remember, I declared <laughs> that the person who stole this, having no idea that it was my beloved wife, would die, and then she dies giving birth to Benjamin. And then my beloved son, Joseph, dies. You could get a sense why Jacob does not want to send Benjamin back because he knows that, that he's guilty. He's afraid of what will come to him with the repayment. And now we have a story where Rachel's son, Benjamin, is standing before somebody else saying, did you steal my cup? It's not just silver now, but it's the cup, Joseph says, of which I do my divination. Of course, he did not. But there's this sense in which these other cultures' spiritualities, that just as Rachel took Laban's idol, um, now Benjamin is found with this cup that was used for divine purposes. And the brothers have just said, whoever has the cup should die. And the rest of us will become slaves. And there's this tragic repeating. Is this really what's going to happen to Jacob again? That Rachel was pronounced uh, guilty and died, and now he would find out later that Benjamin would die as well? How on earth is this story going to be fixed? Is this family going to be changed? Let's keep reading. Chapter 44, verse 14. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go in peace to your father. And then Judah went up to him and said, O oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a younger brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. And then you said to your servants, Bring him down with me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. 
Then you said to your servants, unless the youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. And then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces, and I've never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Shul. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then, as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Shul. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. And let, let the boy go back with his brothers, for how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the end that would find my father. This is Judah's speech that changes the heart of Joseph. And there's at least two components that make this very moving. One is it's clear that Joseph is very concerned for his father. We don't know exactly why Joseph has concocted the plan that he has had. It seems effective, uh, holding Simeon for ransom, wanting to see Benjamin. But no doubt there's anger and spite. Joseph's filled with emotion as you go back in the story. He can't contain himself. And what he did may seem justified, but now as Judah is speaking, having no idea that this, when he's talking about his father, he's talking about the man's father, he makes clear to Joseph, <laughs> Joseph, in his desperation to see Benjamin, has put his own father at risk. And that would no doubt have been convicting. Um, when they show up and they ask, is the old man still alive? And Judah says, well, we told you <laughs> that he's so upset and so loves this boy, he might die. Now, uh, Judah says, if you send us back without Benjamin, this could kill our father. And no doubt that would have provoked Joseph. Joseph, who's been focused on the brothers' unrighteousness, they sold him into slavery. But now Joseph, who would have said, but here I created this game, and I might have killed my own father, caused a heart attack on this grieving man who still is not over my mother or over me, and I nearly overwhelmed him. That would be one component of it. But the other component that I think winds up being so central in this story that must have changed um, Joseph's heart. Remember, Reuben, the firstborn, was the one who sought to spare Joseph uh, when the brothers plotted to kill him, saying, why don't we drop him in a ditch? And Joseph, uh, Reuben meant to buy some time, but Judah was the one that then said, well, why don't we sell him to these Ishmaelites as they're coming by? And if you remember Genesis 38, if you haven't read that, go back and read Genesis 38, a story about Judah learning about his own unrighteousness with Tamar after his own two sons die because of their wickedness. And he has a youngest son that he should give to Tamar, but he's afraid of what will happen to him. <laughs> so he doesn't. And she winds up tricking him and becoming pregnant with his two children, the ones that we will follow, um, uh, Perez uh, being uh, the firstborn, but if you remember that story, if you go back to Genesis 38, even there, there's a switch. Um, now, Judah, the one who learned of his own un unrighteousness, <laughs> the one who promised his father that he would vouch for the boy, um, he's the one who says to Joseph, the one who, who had agreed to sell Rachel's son as a slavery at this point, I don't want the boy staying here and us leaving but I will go in his place. Uh, take me and let Benjamin go for the sake of my father, but also for the sake of this boy. And that, for Joseph, 
showed that the means or the, the necessary ingredients for reconciliation are there. He's heard them. He's overheard them talking about their guilt for what they did. A few chapters earlier when, when they don't know that Joseph understands Hebrews and they say, all of these things are happening to us because of what we did to our brother so many years before. Did we not hear him pleading with us to show him mercy? And we didn't. And Joseph understands their guilty conscience. So now every time something goes wrong in their lives, they think God is repaying us for the wrong that was done. But Judah now, who himself has been humbled and changed, largely through the incident with Tamar, now comes and says, we are guilty. God has found out our guilt. He's making no excuses. He's understanding his ultimate accountability. But he says, but at the end of the day, I will stand in for the life of the boy. Verse uh, 23, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and the boy will go back with his brothers. I fear to see the evil that would find my father. And in these themes of good and evil, Jude is the one who says, I don't want the evil to continue to spread in this family. And so I'm going to do something good, which is take the place of my brother. And of course, Joseph is the ultimate hero in this one section of, of Genesis, but Judah is the one that we will follow who shows himself to be the leader, the one who steps forward, the one who's effective, the one whose descendants lead to King David, but ultimately to Jesus Christ. When we find ourselves thinking, how will God fix this broken human family? How will God deal with all of our wrongdoing? How will any of us not have to deal with penalty for the guilt of whatever it is that we've done that one day God will find out? How on earth will we ever stand before God Almighty, El Shaddai? And the answer is, if God is gracious, and if El Shaddai shows mercy, we have hope. How do we know that we have hope? Because God did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all. And that's the point of this story, which is part of this grander redemptive narrative to say you have done evil but God purposes good and whenever you do evil there's injustice and someone suffers and you can't undo that you can't make it right but God can because God is just and God is the one who justifies and so in sending the descendant of Judah to stand in the place of broken humanity God makes it possible that we despite the wrong that we've done uh, can be shown mercy before El Shaddai, God Almighty, that we can receive grace upon grace. And this story sets up the true redemptive story, the one that's offered to us, which is that the hero is not Joseph or Judah, but it's God himself who, through Jesus Christ, um, brings an end, resolves all these pieces. And so here's how today's portion ends with the first section of verse 45, chapter 45. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children, and your children's children, and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you. 
For there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. And he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. And so here we have what really is not the end of the Joseph story. There's more to come. But what is arguably the climactic moment, this reconciliation, the, the granting of forgiveness. And Joseph doesn't say, hey, no big deal. He doesn't say, I don't even remember it, like it was nothing. He says, you sold me into slavery. He speaks the truth with clarity. He's not pretending everything is okay. But Joseph is showing what he learned over the years through Joseph's experience of suffering and waiting on God and trusting and trying to make sense of things. He learned that God was with him this whole time. He, he couldn't trust his brothers. He couldn't trust Pharaoh. He couldn't trust anyone. But he found that he can trust God. And so now he's at this moment and he gives God the honor and the glory and he says, what you meant for evil... God had his purposes, not just for me, but for you. That what you did to me with the intention of evil, actually God used to bring the salvation of your own descendants. He will now give a place. You don't have to go back and have my father die by hearing that Benjamin is gone too, but tell him to hurry up, come here, and tell him about me. It's funny how human nature doesn't change. Tell my father, I'm now the most important person in Egypt. <laughs> you know, you can imagine that, that he, he has this message, make sure my father knows. Uh, you could see this human story, but that's not the key point that he's making. The key point is God will provide. God has sent me here. I've suffered all of these things, and there's no excuse for it, but I'm not going to hold a grudge because I've seen the grace of God. And this is very much like the message of the New Testament in Acts 4, the, the apostles heal someone and they're brought on charges for that. How dare you do this? In whose name did you do this? And Peter in Acts 4 says, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. And that's how we understand human history. We sell our brothers into slavery. We crucify the Son of God. We do all of these things, and we walk around with guilt, waiting one day for the reckoning. When will God Almighty find it out and repay me? And what Peter says is, you meant this, <laughs> but God raised him up. And now in his name, God is turning things around. He's redeeming. He's healing the diseased and the afflicted. He's casting out demons. He's announcing good news to the poor. What you meant for evil, God has been working in and through and under to show that only God is the one who works thoroughly for good. And so we have that in this story, that by the end of the story, those last verses, Joseph is with Benjamin again. There's no grudge there. He's just grateful for the injustice that he and Benjamin suffered. But it ends in verse 15 with him kissing all of the brothers, and the brothers utterly dismayed, having no idea what to make of the fact that they're now standing before Joseph. The dream is being realized and there's fear. We find this later when Jacob dies. It's still in the back of their minds. One day, Joseph will get his revenge. They don't yet understand grace. Joseph really believes God sent him ahead for their salvation. And so the fearful sinner is told that there is mercy. And that's what we're told. It's not that we will ever make it right. It's not that you can do enough good that will fix the bad that you've done. It's not that if you apologize sincerely or if you pretend it never happened or without any basis that one day good may magically happen. We're told that whatever we have meant and whatever we have done, God sent Jesus ahead of us so that when the day of reckoning comes, we will receive mercy, not because of the good we did, but we will also not receive condemnation because of the evil we did. Because of the evil that Jesus suffered, we will receive the good that we are not deserving of. And so 
God Almighty is merciful. God shows grace. God announces peace. That is our hope. And that hope then changes our understanding. And so that's what this passage is about. God's providence, God at work in the world. God has been at work these last 14, 18 months during COVID and all of the terrible things that, it, that have brought out in terms of exposing through our social divisions the evil that resides in our hearts, the deep roots that our sin has. And yet somehow we are a people that are called to live a different narrative, to believe that there is mercy and that there is grace. And so here's some things we learn. One is your choices matter. The brothers are forgiven. So could they say then it was no big deal? Glad we sold Joseph and we, 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 we didn't have to deal with him all this time. They suffered for many years because God has put a conscience in us. They, they lived with fear that one day the wrong they did will be repaid them. Why should we do good? Because it's inherently good. <laughs> We're always thinking, how do I get away with evil? And you realize God can forgive all the evil we do, but our choices have consequences. Why would we do evil even if we know it could be forgiven? Don't we understand the nature of evil? Joseph suffered all these years, but so did the brothers, so did the whole family. And so we're told, you can do terrible things and God can still show you mercy. But it raises the question, why on earth would you do terrible things? God offers you a better way. So your decisions matter. There's human agency. But the story reminds us there is grace and mercy. That with all of our past flaws, with all of our present struggles, no doubt all of us in the future will continue to do things that we know we should not do and don't want to do. Our hope is that God is a God of ongoing grace and mercy. So we, we make good choices, we fight the good fight, but we believe that at the end of the day, the hope is not that we will stand having earned enough favor, but that God has sent Jesus ahead of us and that he has prepared a place and that on that basis alone, we can stand before El Shaddai. Um, a lesson we learn is then to be gracious and merciful. Joseph struggled Joseph was angry. Joseph maybe had a spirit of vengeance. All of these things are very understandable. But at the end of the day, Joseph's ultimate decisions in this story were gracious and merciful. And how do you do that? You do that only once you come to the realization, God has shown me grace and mercy. And therefore, that is how I will relate to the world. And Joseph had the right, the authority as an Egyptian leader to punish and repay his brothers but he understood the mercy and grace of God instead chose that, and that is what brings reconciliation. That's what brings redemption. And here's a, a final lesson. We can trust the wisdom of God, which is that we go into the world not understanding so much and in control of so little that we can see that over time, God works with grace and mercy for the peace of his people. And so when you look at the Joseph story, the lesson is not that everything that goes wrong will work out wonderfully, as if to say, well, I didn't get this job. I know God has something better for me. Sure, you can hope for that. Maybe God does have something better for you. But we don't know, because when we think that way, and then when, when we have a job we don't like, we think, oh, God must be punishing me. Because <laughs> we think in the short term, where for Joseph... Things worked out remarkably. All of these terrible things led to his being the head of Egypt, the savior of his brothers. But keep in mind, he was sold into slavery. He sat in prison. It's not like when he was sold into slavery, he thought, God must have some better purpose for my life. Because if he was thinking that, then when he was put in prison in Egypt, he would have thought, well, maybe God doesn't. <laughs> but God did. And that's the thing. Maybe our current failures are because God has something much better in store in exactly the areas we're failing. We can hope that. God is that good. That if something doesn't work out, we can believe God will work this out for better. But it does take a certain amount of patience because it may get worse before it gets better. We're told not that every thread in our life is for our ultimate good, which is to say, whatever your interests are, my relationships currently failing, but one day will be great. My work currently failing, one day will be great. My health currently failing, one day will be great. Possibly, God can do all of those things in your life. But what we know is, while it doesn't appear that God is doing that, God has still gone before you so that the outcome of your life and all of these things, so your story may be 
that you never had the career success you wanted, but you have a share in the kingdom of heaven. Your story may be that you were never the most popular person as you dreamed of being, but you're in the presence of Christ. And I know that that sounds so far off and distant, but it's the kind of thing that Joseph seemed to have had with him that he saw as things were unfolding, God's wisdom at work, that all of these terrible things are happening, and I don't need to make excuses for them, but I'm not going to get caught up in them. I'm not going to become embittered. I'm not going to repay evil for evil. But I will see the goodness of God and believe in his wisdom that when I look back, I will say the Lord has been merciful to me the whole of my life. And if you're a Christian, that's what we're told. Jesus has gone before us. Not that every detail will work out exactly as you hope, but even when it doesn't, the wisdom of God is still at work in your lives so that through Christ, God is working for the good of all who have that hope. And so it raises the question, what really is our ultimate hope? Is it that we will be successful, that we will be upright, that we will um, provide the means of our own reckoning, or is it something much more sure, something much more powerful, that despite all of your failings and imperfections, that God is gracious and merciful? We know this because he sent Jesus before us to bear the guilt of our sin and to be raised for the life that we are promised, will be given to us. And so if that's not your hope, understand that that is a sure hope. That allows you to go into a world where you don't understand and can't control and believe that your life could count for something and that you don't need to get pulled into the evil, but you can do better. And if that is your hope, it will be tested. Again and again, you'll find yourself thinking, I have no idea how this is going to work out. And we're called to patience. God has gone before us and... Don't trust yourself. Don't trust the people around you. Don't trust what you know and what you've seen and experienced. But trust the Lord Jesus Christ, who's gracious and merciful. If that is our hope, then we could go back out into a world that's still intent on doing evil and saying we are going to be merciful and gracious because that's our reality. That's what we know. If that's what God did for us, that's what we're going to still do. And so if you're stuck, <laughs> if you're stuck because you're afraid to do the next thing, don't live a risky, careless life. But if you're being a bit irrational, exercise faith. God will bless your work. That doesn't mean you'll be successful in all you do, but it means your life uh, will have been worth having lived. And that's pretty good as we then go back into the details. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we are indeed a people who know so little, who can control far less than we desire. And perhaps that's a grace, Lord. If we were able to do everything we wanted, what regret we would build up for ourselves. Lord, thank you for your wisdom that sometimes you withhold what we desire. Sometimes you keep us from doing what we are intent on doing because your purposes are greater than ours and your wisdom is greater than ours. And so, Lord, we submit ourselves to you El Shaddai, God Almighty, merciful and gracious, a God who gives peace where it's not deserved or earned simply because you are generous. And so, Lord, may your spirit stir in our hearts that hope that we would go back into this world not afraid, not stuck, not caught up in the evil of the world, but intent to repay evil with good, uh, even as Jesus has done that for us. Grant us the, the fullness of your spirit this week to see what you are doing, that we would make good choices, choices that honor you, choices that reflect the hope that we have for ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.